Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast. This podcast is done by two ladies who play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and as such, listener discretion is advised. Jen. And together we are <laughs> the Wheel of Crime. Woo! Yes. Oh, how so exciting. Very exciting. How have you been this week, Jen? I have been doing good. I am loving the new Animal Crossing update. Yes. Um, Emily and I had a little a little date last night where we called each other and went diving. <laughs> It was so much fun, although it took me maybe 800 years to figure out how you do a flip off the dock. <laughs> we, we, we figured it out, though. We, we mastered the dive, the front flip, if you will. Yes, and next I'm going to try and jump off a cliff, because mm. I feel like I probably could. I just haven't tried it yet. I didn't even think about that. Right? Well, because, like, on the one half of my island, too, like, it's partially cliffs, right? So I technically could. I just haven't tried it yet. I mean, I think it's worth trying. And if you can't do it, that would be very disappointing. Yes, and then uh, I, I've requested maybe 50 white tulips from Jen. <laughs> it's true. I haven't played yet today. Probably Neither have I. I didn't even look. <laughs> probably because I'm dreading not only buying 50 white tulips, but then mailing them. Well, maybe after we record, I'll come visit your island and buy them, because it's just, (laughs) it's so much work, and I feel so bad being like, hey, I love you and everything, can you do this really horrible task for me that's super (laughs) time-consuming and takes up, like, like 20,000 bells? Literally, I think the only reason why I'm, like, I think it's mainly because how do I want to say this? I think mailing it wouldn't even be that bad if you could buy it in groups larger than five. That's the part where I'm like, ugh. And why a bundle why of five? Like, this? like a right? flower package in real life has like 500. Why can I not get something like that? I don't even care right? how much it is. <laughs> like, I just want the quantity. I know. I just wish. And for I the love of like... God, I wish I could buy fish bait. Like, make it in bundles, sure. Like, if I can't have that, just let me buy it. (laughs) Just let me buy it. I don't want to make it. I don't want to go through the process. I just... I won't use it if I have to make it myself. And here's the thing. Like, I still have not caught a mahi-mahi or a giant trevally. And I know it's because I need, like, 500 (laughs) fish bait. But the whole process of making fish bait makes me want to rip my ears and my eyes out. (laughs) It's true. It's very long, very frustrating, and I am not all about that life. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's giving me, like, mild PTSD because I remember trying to make a bunch of fish bait for when I was trying to 
I believe I was trying to catch a blue marlin back in like April or something. And I just remember oh, making right. literally 50 fish bait. And I was like, I never want to do this again. And then I found yeah. out about the, the two assholes that I'm trying to catch. And I'm like, uh, no. I wonder if you can just buy fish bait off of eBay. I haven't looked, but that is a thought. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I've I've been considering. If there is... I will. Like, I'm not joking. <laughs> it's so time consuming. Like, it literally eats hours of my life away trying to make fish bait. I do not even give a shit if I have to pay, like, 5 or $10 for fish bait. I don't care anymore. All right? Okay, let me look right now. We have okay. to get the answer to this. We need answers. We need answers. We should just um, rebrand ourselves the Animal Crossing podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we talk about all the hard hitting news on this podcast well because i but that was the only thing about the update was now there's the diving like there wasn't anything else big that happened right i feel that um fish baits or not fish bait diving (laughs) is a pretty big update oh my god emily you're never gonna believe can you do it can you do it can you do it you can buy 800 fish bait for $7.98. Fuck. Okay, listen. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> I'll send you the link. Literally? Yeah, I'm gonna... I'll write this on my forehead if I have to. I am getting fish bait tonight. Because I can't even believe that. Who... This person is a hustler. Hey, they're making bank. Who even cares? I will pay them. 51 have sold. (laughs) (laughs) They understand the struggle. They know where the demand is. (laughs) Oh, man. That's all I saw my future, and in it is fish bait. True. True. Okay. Well, right after this, I'm going to visit you, and then I'm going to buy a ton of fish bait. (laughs) Oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, anyways. <laughs> what has your week been like, M? That is a very good question. I feel like I've just been really busy with work, still hating the sun. Um, I did flooring for work not that long ago, which just made me realize that it's been a long time since I've done flooring and that I don't really like doing flooring. Would that be the rubber flooring that usually goes into gyms? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, working with a team of people installing some rubber flooring into a gym. But the problem was is that usually what we recommend is that people tear up the carpet first. So then it doesn't mm-hmm. cause as much like shifting and stuff. Because carpet with like rubber on top of it, like it's still like a bit, it's different textures. So the rubber matting moves a lot, especially through the seasons. Yeah. Uh, as, like, it gets colder and warmer, like, buildings shift and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were doing it on top of carpeting, though, and it was so frustrating because we couldn't get it to line up perfectly because it was on carpeting and because of how much it was moving. And just by the end of the day, I was like, my neck hurts, my knees hurt, I'm done, I never want to look at another floor again. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Just, Yeah. That- that would not be the job for me. I would get too <laughs> frustrated and they would fire me. Because... You see, I like the variety of being able to do different stuff, but sometimes when it comes to stuff like this, I'm like, man, I am just not the right person for this job. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's how I feel in my current position as well. <laughs> yeah, like like I said, I am happy to be able to be doing different things all the time, but holy moly, am I not a flooring person. I will leave mm-hmm. that to the construction folks. No way, Jose. Yeah, but no, I feel like other than that, though, you know, just the usual Animal Crossing, uh, playing The Witcher when I have time and I'm not playing Animal Crossing, uh doing work and i don't know i'm supposed to go fishing tomorrow for the first time like in real life not animal crossing i have only ever been fishing once and was that with me when we went ice fishing because i i can't remember i've never been ice fishing but i've been fishing with like or with (laughs) okay also side note i'm trying to stop using the word like so much because editing our podcasts makes me very cognizant of how much I say that fucking word and I drive myself crazy so I can't imagine being a listener of this show. I was gonna say I listen to our own episodes and I hear stuff that I say and I'm like ooh I didn't realize that I had these valley girl tendencies that I've just been keeping in my pocket. Ooh right? I'm just I'm trying to stop and it's very difficult. And my boyfriend, uh, today I was like talking like this, trying to think of every word before I said it. And he's like, oh my God, I said it again. He was, he said, You're, you sound like a robot. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the whole thing though. Like, see, I do it too. When you're speaking naturally, it's hard to avoid filler words words, especially yeah filler words especially if you depend on them all the time i'm guilty of it too but then because i think of the fact that we're friends it's kind of like it bounces off each other so if i use it a lot then you listen to me and then you use it a lot and then it's like the same way the other way around it's so true and i feel that i've picked it up from i've picked up the, the mannerisms from people that i spend a lot of time with so they use a lot of those filler words and then I end up using a lot of those filler words and they say things in a certain way and then I say things in a certain way. It's just a whole thing. And, and I don't even remember a whole big family of copycats. It's true. And I don't even know what my original story was anymore. So I don't even know either. <laughs> Um, I, I got taken on this train with you. I was like, oh, yeah, what's <laughs> up with that? Let's just spin the wheel of questions. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. I did remember, just just so we could <laughs> wrap up the story before we spin. Oh, uh, it was the fishing, fishing thing. Right. Okay, <laughs> right. So the only time I've ever gone fishing is with my family when we went camping one year. And I was pretty young. I was like 10, maybe. And my brother, every time he, like, wound up to throw the fishing rod, he would end up throwing the whole line into the tree behind him. And my dad just got so upset. He was, like, like after, like, four or five times of, like, this fishing rod in the tree and him having to, like, go, like, try and get it out, he was yep. just like, that's enough. We're done here. No, thank you. <laughs> this family activity is not for me. Honestly, I can see that. Like, yeah. here's the thing, though. I think it'd be really hard to go fishing with children, though, for that reason. Like, I think that if you are, you should probably wait until people are a little bit older, mm-hmm. you know? Which I think is why my mom wanted to go tomorrow, because now my youngest sibling is, like, 11 years old, 12 years old, right? 
Mm-hmm. So at least at that age that you can kind of like do a little bit of negotiating <laughs> and problem solving, right? My brother was older than me at the time and <laughs> I was 10. So... I... Okay. So he just have, has his own problems then. <laughs> I think he was being a shit disturber because he went fishing a lot after that, actually. And... He never seemed to have the same issues. So I feel mm. there was some hooliganish there happening. That would be pretty on par for your brother to have it, some kind of foolishness <laughs> going on. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> this brother who we are not naming, I guess, even though you only have one. <laughs> hey, these people, people don't know me personally. Maybe. Oh, I guess. Well, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> Some of them do, I'm sure. If I, mean, I know I you in real not. life, if I, I know you in real life, hello, please stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unless you're my mother or uh, Andrew, like, <laughs> just, just put it down now. You've heard enough already. <laughs> just stop. Like, this isn't you can, for you. You can go. It's fine. We're here if for I knew the you... strangers, and that's it. <laughs> Exactly. If I knew you in high school, I mean, we probably didn't like each other then, so this is kind of weird, right? <laughs> you put it out weird vibes, man. Do you like me? Do you not like me? I can see you watching my Instagram stories, and I don't follow you back for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're not out here to flame people. Oh, you don't even know what my story's about, do you? No, I okay. haven't opened uh, this PDF that you sent me. Thank God. Okay, don't even open it yet. Okay. <laughs> we're going to do, do our wheel of questions first, and I will let you know when you can open it, okay? Okay, sounds good. I've been waiting in suspense for a week. Yes, for an, just for an explanation, I with my story today, I have a relevant document that I have saved as a PDF. So I sent it to Jen so that when I give her the cue, she can open it up and we can go through it all together. Because rather than me describe it and be reading it, I wanted to be able to have it so that you also had the option of reading it. Okay. Interesting. We're, we're yeah. spicing things up here on the Wheel of Crime podcast, apparently. Yes. And I and didn't then, even know. <laughs> well, and the other part of it, too, is that just in case, because I'm a little bit suspicious, I don't think my iPad will allow me to open up a certain number of things and run my recorder, my recording audio at the same time. Mm. And so I'm like, I'll just send it to Jen so that for when I know I can't, at least somebody will be able to read this. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> right? See? Problem solving. But She's anyways. Such a good problem solver. Now it is time to spin the wheel of questions. Are you ready? Ooh, I'm so ready. Me too. <laughs> So, what's the weirdest dream that you've ever had? Hmm. I used to have this dream when I was younger. And um, every time I was sick, I would have the same dream where I would start. Like, I... This is going to be very hard with my whole, like, vendetta. Okay. To tell you anything, <laughs> but... <laughs> um. I used to, the dream would start off when I was on a train that was going around in circles constantly, mm -hmm. and it kind of 
gave me motion sickness because I would just be going around and around on this train and eventually I would jump off the train to try and like feel better and I would end up going through this maze where I had no idea where I was going. I was very stressed and confused about where I was and where Mm -hmm. I was supposed to go and I would turn around and there would be this like faceless like creepy man walking slowly behind me and he never walked fast and he would just slowly walk behind me until eventually he would catch up with me right as I was like trying to navigate through the maze like and really like sweaty and frustrated and Mm -hmm. afraid and then I'd wake up weird (laughs) I've known you for this long this is the first time I've heard of that that is that's both weird and creepy every time I had the flu as a kid or was like sick in any way I would have that dream weird until I was like a teenager I've said like seven times already I'm sorry (laughs) whatever i'm just i'm putting it out of my mind for now just to like wipe my memory and be like you don't even know what that word is <laughs> get it out of here man right but what's the yeah oh. <laughs> sorry i cut you off but uh no i was gonna say though that it's really weird that you would say that you used to have dreams before you get sick and that they were always the same because i used to also have that and it would always really? be the same dream. Yeah. But here's What's the thing. Yours? There's a lot of weird similarities, Jen, between yours and mine. And really? I don't know if I've ever told you about mine because it used to make me so, it was just so unnerving that like I would wake up and I would obviously be sick. So you'd be like sweaty and like all this, but I'd also be so nauseous just from the dream itself. Mm-hmm. So like basically in my dream, I would like be kind of like in like a like the woods or like a farm area but like there's a hill and at the bottom and I'm at the bottom of the hill and Mm -hmm. I am basically like walking down to the bottom of this hill and I can kind of see something in the corner of like this little like clearing before like the it like the woods really start so Mm -hmm. I walk there and I look down and I realize that it's a tombstone and like there's something kind of weird sticking out from behind it but it makes me like really physically uncomfortable So then I turn around and I try to go back up the hill because at the top of the hill I can see that there's like a house or like a small farmhouse or something. Right. So the second I try to go up this hill, it's like I'm extremely dizzy. Like in my dream, I'm walking up the hill, but then I like see myself walking back down the hill and I can't walk up this hill. It's like every time I walk up, I'm walking back down. It's almost like in circles and I'm making myself dizzy. And so like I go to lay on the grass to try to like crawl up this hill because I can't walk up it. And Mm -hmm. as I'm doing that, I can see myself crawling back down the hill. And every time I turn to go back down the hill, there's something coming out from behind the tombstone. And it's like coming towards me. And it's a black shadowy figure without a face, like slowly coming towards me. But I can't see it because of how dizzy I am. And then eventually just from like going in circles and like trying to get up this hill I eventually get to the top and I open the gate to the farmhouse or like like the door into the farmhouse and it's a maze on the inside no way no like seriously and so I'm in this maze and I'm trying to find my way out 
and I'm super lost in this maze and I'm scared and I'm sweaty and I look and there, there's like a dead end but I look at the end of this dead end and there is a black sheep and I make eye contact with it and like it's its mouth obviously doesn't move because it's a sheep but it's like almost like I look at it and I can like hear in my head and it's like you need to leave something really bad is about to happen to you almost like it's talking to me and I turn around and the shadowy figure has followed me into the maze mm, and I turn I back like around that. and the sheep is gone and I'm like no but then eventually I wake up like I'm I just spend my whole night running through this maze as the, I'm getting chased and I can't figure out like who it is or how to get out right my dream always felt so long yeah, like a like, hundred years. And it it was like I would wake up and feel like that was the only dream I'd had that night. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too. It's like technically your REM cycle less, lasts less than an hour at night. But, like, I would wake up and I'd be like, I feel like I used all my time on just that dream. <laughs> <laughs> on the shitty dream. I banked all my dream hours sick. into this one that makes me ill. Yep. Ugh. <sighs> Yeah, That's exactly. That's so right. weird. It is weird. Like, well, as soon as you said uh, faceless man or like faceless figure and a maze, I was like. And going in circles, getting yeah, dizzy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so weird. Uh, I, I feel <laughs> that you've never told me that story before. Because I haven't. I haven't. It was one of those things where it made me, it was just so unnerving. I never said right? anything. I never said anything to anyone either. I don't know. The whole thing is so interesting, though. But it makes you wonder if maybe, like, when your brain's sick, if it puts you through certain types of scenarios as, like, a default. Or maybe because we were neighbors, we're just doubly haunted. Yeah. Maybe the ghosts from your house just, you know, waltz their way over to my house in the middle of the night. They're <laughs> For like, a visit. Do, 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 do. Let's haunt Jenny tonight. Yeah, Woo! they're like, I sense there's a child in distress. I must be there. <laughs> I must torture and taunt. Exactly right. All right. Let's spin again, though. Yes. So are you somebody who has dreams a lot or not that often? Because I know some people will have them pretty regularly, like enough to keep a dream journal every night, whereas other people don't really have them that often. I definitely have dreams every night. Um, but by the time I wake up, I usually can't remember most of it. Mm-hmm. I have a good idea of what happened and how I felt. But I usually can't remember specifics unless it's something, a reoccurring dream or something like that. Like the one from when I was a child and sick. Or if something really traumatic happens. Right, right, right. Okay. That makes sense, though. I can, I don't know. I used to have, there's one other dream from my tra- from my childhood that I remember very vividly in which a man with a knife was chasing me and I always woke up right as I was falling down this giant cliff. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Sweet, pleasant pleasant dreams. dreams. Pleasant childhood (laughs) dreams. I never have nice dreams. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's how I feel. Like All the ones I remember are never the nice ones. Well, except for, I will say, I had... um, I had a dream not that long ago where I was like, I don't know, it, it was really weird. It was like I was camping 
somewhere I had never been and it was like the sunset and I just remember it being like really warm and nice out like it was around September so like the leaves were starting to fall and stuff and I was like oh this is nice that's the only one I I can remember though (laughs) I don't know even my dreams that start off nice end up making me feel very stressed I feel like I overall have a lot of stress dreams See, I feel like those are your inner demons that you refuse to acknowledge in the daytime coming out at nighttime. Uh, probably. (laughs) You're like, well, of all the things that are uh, likely to happen, that would be uh, number one. Yep. Yeah, I have a lot of dreams where I'm very stressed or my biggest fears happen Mm -hmm. or or (laughs) terrible things happen. And that's probably not... It's probably not a coincidence. I don't know. I would say probably not. Whereas, like, your subconscious brain is like, finally, some acknowledgement. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so appreciated. Yeah, right? I don't know. I feel like, um, I... Here's the thing. For a long time, I thought that I was somebody who didn't have a lot of dreams. Because, like, I would just remember ones, like, every now and again and be like, oh, okay. Like, that must mean I only have dreams, like, once a year. Like, I don't know. (laughs) But I don't know. Lately, I realized, though, that it is every night. But it's the same thing as you where it's just like they're either so short or like so or like they don't really stand out to me. So that by the time I wake up, it's kind of like, oh, it happened. I just I don't remember anything. Yeah, I weirdly, even as I'm saying a dream out loud, if I if I feel like it was very vivid and I'm trying to tell my partner about it Mm -hmm. as I'm telling him, I'm like already forgetting what happened see that's what i'm like too it's like you gotta hammer down the important details first and then figure out the rest later because it's probably not a true retelling anyways and that's the other thing is that there's so much i feel like that can be shoved into a dream that by the time you wake up you've already lost so many details from like when your dream started exactly i don't know pretty crazy right let's spin again Definitely almost punched a candle. That would have been really bad. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, so do you think you could or would you ever control your dreams? I could phrase this differently. So basically, can you or can you not? And if you could, would you control your dreams? I don't think I can control my dreams. Um, I've never tried though, but I, I feel like that would be a hard skill to master. Yeah. But if I could, I would, because I would love to have less stress dreams. I would love for it to be awesome dreams where great things happen instead of me waking up feeling more stressed than I did when I went to bed. Uh, (laughs) but that's not my life. That is, that is definitely a fair point. Yeah, I don't know. I thought this question was really interesting because uh, I was remembering how my brother... So my brother was telling me about how when he is sleeping, if he's, like, in a dream that's starting to make him uncomfortable, so, like, a stress dream or something, he, like... It's almost like in his dream, he'll, like, pull out a coin, and if he can't read what's on the coin, he knows he's in a dream. And then once he acknowledges Mm. that he knows that he's in a dream, he can control the rest of it and how it happens. I don't even know how you would begin the process of doing that. It seems so... It has a lot to do with connecting with your subconscious. That's why. Like, it's definitely a skill to master, right? 
I don't, yeah, I definitely do not have that mastered. Pretty cool if I did, but right, I don't. See, I'm the same way too. Like, I, I cannot control my dreams, but I feel like if I could figure out a method or practice that skill and be able to do it, like, I don't know what I would use it for, <laughs> but I do think it would be good for, like, if there is any dreams I have where it's, like, very obviously stress-induced or, like... I feel it taking like a dark turn and I'm like, Ooh, let's just, let's just go back a little. Let's, let's turn the dial up. This man with a knife is just holding a, a bouquet uh... and he's actually my husband. Oh, look, we're married. Oh, we have a, we have a cute dog. Oh, together. Wow. <laughs> this is not a cliff. It's a trampoline. Wow. See, like that would be cool to be able to like make those types of changes, but I don't know. So far I am the victim to whatever my brain decides to to torture me with every night. Same. <laughs> thanks, right. brain. Yeah, thanks, brain. Number one. Oh, man. <laughs> but yes, we have one more question left. Are you ready? I'm ready. So ready. So what is the scariest dream that you have ever had? Now, hmm. I will rephrase this just because it is hard to remember dreams. What is the scariest dream that you can remember having? It's not necessarily the scariest one you have, and it can also be one from your childhood. It doesn't have to be something recent. Hmm. I'll let you tell yours first, because I know yours, and I feel like it's scarier than any that I can remember at the moment, but I'll see if I can jog my memory while you tell yours. Okay, so... Basically, the one that Jen is talking about is one I've told her, like, maybe 100,000 times just because of how traumatizing it was for me. <laughs> it was kind of traumatizing for me. <laughs> right? Well, because it used to, to happen. It. Yeah. Well, it used to happen a lot when I was, like, a preteen and then to, like, into my early teens, too. So this e wasn't even, like, a child, like, a child's dream. This was a little bit more uh, uh, detailed, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but like I just remember in my dream what would happen is I would wake up in my dream so I wouldn't realize I was sleeping I would be in my dream waking up and thinking that I was actually awake in real life and I'd right. be going through my day doing my normal day-to-day -day stuff you know like have breakfast you know uh start walking to school with you like all these normal things that we used to do all the time mm -hmm. and in my dream, at some point, I would realize that I could kind of see, it, like, it, it kind of looked like a figure in the distance, but, like, it would always be, like, I would be doing something, like, say, having breakfast, and I would be zoning out, looking out the window, and I can kind of see a figure in the distance, but I didn't really know what it was. Like, it could have been a person. It could not have been, so then it wasn't really that important. But mm -hmm. then as the day goes on in my dream, and I, I keep, like say, looking out at the playground or looking out the window or, like, looking down the hall, I'm realizing that this figure that I had seen is slowly becoming clearer and it's also getting a little bit closer to me. Like, not, le like, necessarily that it's following me, but, like, like, I would, say, be looking out at the playground and all of a sudden I would be seeing this figure and I'd be like, I thought I saw something earlier, but now it's way closer and it's definitely a person, but then mm -hmm. I would look again and it would be gone. So... Anyways, the day goes on in my dream and towards the evening, I'm in my house. And so I look down the hallway and it's like I'm getting ready for bed in my dream. And I look down the hallway and this figure is now at the other end of the hallway. I can see very, very clearly. Sorry, my mom was calling me. 
uh, I could see very, very clearly that it was an old man, but not somebody I know. Like, it wasn't a grandparent. It wasn't, like, you know, a family friend. Like, just a random old person. And then they start walking towards me. And as I'm looking down the hallway, because, like, where I used to live, the hallway was very... It was kind of dark towards the end because the light was only on one side of the hallway. It didn't carry like throughout the hallway. So as he's coming closer, I can see that he's not alone. He's got like an old woman with him as well. Like they're together. And I make eye contact with the old woman and suddenly both of them start screaming at me. Like a blood curdling deep scream. And it just, it doesn't stop. And I just, you can hear it ringing in your ears. It's horrifying. And I go into my bedroom and I turn around and they're at kind of like the threshold of my bedroom. So like right at the doorway. And there's, I used to have a little like kind of like metal piece dividing the hallway from my bedroom at the bottom right. of the door. It's kind of like a doorstop almost. And I'm looking down at it and I look back up at them and they're still screaming. And as I'm looking at them, their eyes start bleeding and I can see like streaks of blood that kind of look like tears coming down. And I look down at the carpet because I can see that the blood is falling. And I look down onto my bedroom carpet and I can see blood coming up out of the, out of the carpet. And then I start to panic, right? Because in, in, my, in my dream, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm in my room. Nobody's around. Like these people are screaming. I can't ask for help because nobody will hear me. And I go to turn around to jump out the window. And I go mm-hmm. over to the window. I unlatch it. And the second I unlatch it, I see that there's somebody on the other side of the window and before it's too late for me to close the window, they grab me by the arm and pull me out the window. And that's how I would wake up. And I used to have <sighs> that dream back to back to back every single night for probably about six or eight months for one. It was like the one year. And then before we ended up moving to the house that my parents live in now, I started having those dreams again, like leading up to when we moved out. Oh, it makes me so anxious. Just because, didn't the people who lived there before you, weren't they an older couple? They were. Well, like, so what it was is that, well, the people directly before us, it was like a single mom and her two kids. And I guess they had a bunch of cats, but they moved out suddenly. Like, the reason that my parents were able to move into that house is because she didn't even really put the house up for sale. She just, like, moved out and told the realtor, like, I'm not living here anymore. Figure the rest out for me. So right. that's how my my parents moved in. And then while they were there, from talking to the lady who lived there before, they, she had mentioned that when she had moved in, there was an old couple that had lived there before, but they had passed away in the house. I think those things may be connected. <laughs> As an older person, I would have to agree that probably those things were connected, yes. I felt very unwelcome in that house the whole time I was there, so... That house weirdly has a lot of in and out traffic. Because I think Mm -hmm. the people who bought it from you after you guys moved out, they're not there anymore, right? No, they moved out like... Well, it was weird because they had bought it for their kids, for my parents, because my my parents were friends with the people who moved in after. And they were only there for maybe a year and a half. And then they moved out. And then since then, yeah, it's been just random people who've been moving in and out of that place like i don't think anybody's lived there for more than two years since we've lived there yeah <laughs> it's haunted let's all I let's all like get on the same page here sure that place is haunted well like and here's the thing though like my brother i was talking to him about it not that long ago like when we lived there 
And he mentioned to me that he had been digging in the garden at one point with mom and they pulled out like a part of a shirt out of the garden, like a children's shirt, but it was like in rags. And mom, I guess, felt so weirded out by the whole situation that she just like left that part of the garden as it was and just worked in a different part of it. Yeah. And then there was also another thing where, uh, do you remember when my mom used to work in the front garden? She tried to like plant trees kind of around the corner there. Mm hmm. So while she was back there, she was letting Ethan play out front and Ethan found that one of the trees, half of it was actually a collar. So a collar had grown into the tree. So I don't know if maybe somebody's pet had been, they like planted a tree on top of their pet or not. But mom was oh. telling me that the whole thing was very unnerving, though, because it, it was like she used to work up in the front garden all the time and she never noticed. And then one day when Ethan was there, he pointed it out and it's like all of a sudden it was there. That's weird. Right? Like, especially if you're working there all the time, wouldn't you think that you'd see something? But I don't know. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, but I will say that is my scariest dream because it still stays with me. And I magically never had that dream again when we moved houses. Never again. It just never happened. That's terrifying. Right? But now you have to share your your scary dream. So, you guys uh, listening should know by now this is the cursed season. Yes. And one of the episodes you guys missed out on was a really awesome episode about mine and Emily's ghost stories. And... We told a bunch of stories. And mm-hmm. anyways, in that episode, I said that I think my parents' house where I grew up was haunted. Yeah. A, a tale for another time. But I remember having this dream all the time when I was really little. So probably like six, seven, all the way up until I was like 13, 14, mm-hmm. where I would almost be awake you know how sometimes you like kind of wake up but your eyes are still closed and you're kind of having a dream still but Mm -hmm. you are sort of awake right i was in that state and i remember for a long period of time i would kind of get in that state where i'd be waking up from a scary dream or a stress dream and i would feel like there was someone's face like this like far away from me like an inch away from me and we were nose to nose and i remember always kind of like waking up and feeling like there was someone there and being really still and not wanting to acknowledge that and then kind of falling back asleep and then i would wake up and I would, like, look around to make sure there was nothing there. And I would usually, because I was so young, when I was younger, I would do this, like, six or seven. Mm-hmm. I would, like, hustle into my parents' bed and just <laughs> <laughs> sleep in there for Save a little me, bit. parents. <laughs> or I would go sleep in my sister's room. But, yeah, I didn't have that dream very often but when I did it really freaked me out because I could never tell if I was awake or if that was a dream it makes you wonder if maybe it was like a a type of sleep paralysis you know because because that's one of the things about sleep paralysis is like you're not really quite awake yet like you're still in that like half awake half asleep stage but you Mm -hmm. feel you either feel or you see something in the room with you that shouldn't be there right 
Yeah, maybe. I never really thought about it. That I might have sleep paralysis or something. I haven't had a dream like that in a long time. But I do get really unnerved. I think quite easily. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Especially in my parents. I love my parents and I love visiting them. But Oh no, that, that basement's hella spooky. The childhood house that I grew up in. It just gives me bad vibes. I get really spooked really easily there Mm -hmm. oh totally yeah and i still to this day if i'm sleeping over at their house and they're not there there's been a couple times where they've gone on vacation and i've gone to house sit for them if i'm there by myself i leave the hallway light on oh of course well that's the other thing too is like like it makes me wonder though because just for context, everybody, uh, I used to live, I used to basically be Jenny's neighbor. That's one of the reasons <laughs> that that we became friends in the first place. But the fact that I had so many awful, creepy experiences at my house, and then your parents' house is also hella spooky. Maybe there was something about just like that part of the street. <laughs> like, you never yeah. know. It weirds me out that your mom found a child's shirt in the ground that makes me think a child was murdered and buried there <laughs> i know right well and that's the thing too she didn't think so because she tried looking for like blood it just looked like it was a really old shirt that had kind of like gone to rags but then that's the thing is like why is it in the ground <laughs> why would they bury that yeah unless Ugh. they had a pet that they buried in a child's shirt which i mean would be weird but it but would not be impossible. a little, yeah. But it would be a little bit better than a murdered child. But yeah, no, it was like like a young mm. shirt, like maybe a two year old's shirt, like a boy's button up. That's, I don't know, rubs me the wrong way, only because I know the feeling I used to get in your parents' basement as well when I was over there. It gave me the same feeling as my parents' basement, and I did not like that. See, and that's the other thing is that you could blame it on creepy basements. But since my parents moved houses, I don't get that feeling in their basement. Mm-mm. Their basement right? has good juju. <laughs> right? Good vibes. Exactly. Oh, but yes. So, based off our questions, have you figured out yet what my story topic is today? Um, some sort of weird dream conspiracy. (laughs) Close. (laughs) Someone gets murdered in their dream and then sues that person. Again, also close. (laughs) So that bitch murdered me in my dream. I want to (laughs) sue. Illegal. It's like when your partner (laughs) cheats on you in a dream and you're like, I can't believe you do that. And they're like, I was sleeping. I didn't do nothing. (laughs) It's true. My partner, I I remember when we first moved in together, I had this like long dream about how they cheated on me and did all this like really mean stuff. And I woke up and I was really upset about my dream. And he was like, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. Dream John is an asshole. I can't be held responsible for that. That literally sounds like a conversation I had with like my partner, Andrew, not the lovely uncle Andrew, who was our Patreon donator (laughs) or subscriber. But uh, no, I literally had like a conversation with him where like it wasn't even a long dream i just remember having a dream where it was like something dumb where i like walked in and like he was cheating on me and i was like "Ah." 
And then I like woke up and I was like, how dare you? How dare you think you could trick me this way? And he literally looked at me and he's like, I am not responsible for dream, Andrew. It's not my fault he sucks. <laughs> true. So true. Right? But what is your topic about? Okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the description. And then if you could open the PDF that I sent you after the description and then read out okay. to our beloved audience what exactly it is that I sent you, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay. This whole thing is very suspicious. It is suspicious, and uh, you're gonna you're gonna love hate me at the end of this episode. <laughs> okay. More than I already do. Exactly. Yeah. Just just on par with usual. And okay. Sweet. So, astral projection or astral travel is a term used in esotericism, I, I tried saying that word before, but I couldn't, to describe an intentional out-of-body experience that assumes the existence of a soul or a consciousness is called the astral body, and it is separate from the physical body and capable of traveling outside it through the universe. So the idea of astra tra astral travel is ancient and occurs in many cultures, so the modern terminology of astral projection was coined and promoted by the 19th century theosophists. Again, I don't think I said that right. Uh, it is sometimes reported in association with dreams and forms of meditation. So some individuals have reported perceptions similar to descriptions of astral projection that were induced through various hallucinogenic and hypnotic means, including self-hypnosis, and currently, there is no scientific uh, evidence that there is a consciousness or soul that is separate from the normal neural activity or that one can consciously leave the body and make observations. And astral projection has been characterized as a uh, pseudoscience. I was going to say pseudoscience. <laughs> Whatever. Studio science. <laughs> Pseudo science. <laughs> <laughs> but yes so that is my description so today i want to talk about a couple science no a couple of interesting things related to astral projection which is the idea that in your dreams or in your subconscious state you can your spirit or your perception of identity can leave your body and do things outside of the body in a subconscious state okay okay seems a bit far-fetched but now Please open the PDF that I sent you. Okay, I'm looking at it, guys. It says top secret, but top secret is crossed out. Yes. It's been declassified in part, apparently. Yes. So what Jenny is looking at is a declassified series of documents that I found showing the government's studies on astral projection and out-of-body experiences and their potential use in spying on people. Are we talking about the U.S. government? Yes. Okay, so it says astral projection caper. Uh, August 8th, 73, 1973, I'm guessing. Yes. <laughs> 1573. 1373 in the medieval ages. Um, telephone call from blank. Um, so this has been a, this is a sanitized copy. So not all of the details are here. Right. For your information, people. <laughs> 
Um, subject volunteered to attempt to locate a facility in the USSR comparable to the underground installation previously described. Found it, gave its exact coordinates, not mentioned blank specifically, but said to be in the Ural Mountains. Subject described external features including helicopter pads, rail spur, and some miles away, 30 to 40 miles, question mark, large dish antennas. Subject said the antennas were used for intercepting downlink telemetry from U.S. satellites, also receiving downlink from Soviet satellites, question mark. (laughs) CIA blank found such a facility at the coordinates given by subject. Photos blank, blank, show large dish dish antennas. The number of antennas was different from that counted by subject, and their demonstrations were slightly different, blank. In a double-blind experiment, subject was fed the coordinates of a small Soviet-occupied island in the Indian Ocean, blank, blank. The island did not show the map used by the experimenters. In fact, the latter assumed the subject was being targeted against open ocean as a test. Subject began drawing a large-scale map of an island following its uh, periphery. Soon, he soon ran off his sheet of paper, continued on another sheet of paper, and continued this process until several separate sheets had been filed in, or been filled in, and subject had returned to his starting point. When pages were joined together, the result was an exact match and absolutely accurate topological map of the island. Subject also described exactly what was going on on the island. Um, July 23rd, 1973, telephone call from blank. Subject has made a second visit to the underground installation. This occurred at 19.30 hours on the 15th of July, 1973. Price's description, surprised at the number of government personnel working on a Sunday evening, two military officers having a conference, they were... What does COL stand for in military people? Um, I can't think of it right now. Uh, for now, we'll skip over it. R.J. Hamilton, chief of oh, chief of security, uh, probably newly assigned, and another military dude whose title I do not know, <laughs> named George R. Nash. Yep. Nash was a Nash was upset about a security leak and emphasized that it must be stopped. The name of the underground facility is Hayfork or Haystack. The other code words on papers and documents in the facility are flytrap and uh, Minerva. Minerva? Minerva. Minerva. There we go. That's a word. (laughs) (laughs) On the north wall of one room are a series of gray locked cabinets. Inside the cabinets are a number of folders marked with code words, including... Cue ball, 14 ball, 4 ball, 8 ball, and rack up. On the outside of a cabinet is the word pool. 
subsequent actions blank has been with USAF security service for many years. I know him something. Oh, I know him personally. Whoever is writing this document Mm -hmm. knows the dude. Nothing close in either rank or name to Mr. Nash found that flytrip, Minerva, cue ball, pool had been used as code words, mythological designators, nicknames, and voice radio call signs in the past, but not since about 1966, some going back to the early 60s. No record of current assignment or usage. A brief summer, um, so on September 7th, 1973, a brief summer of new developments, findings, and some observations. Number one, we have received copies of two SRI reports containing more details of the initial price and swan visits to the blank blank location. One of the reports states that Prince was given the target coordinates by phone and he mailed his response back to the SRI. R.I. and took about 24 hours to begin writing his description of the area. This leaves his performance at about a solid as a chunk of Swiss cheese. There was plenty of time for him to look at a map, refer to an aerial slash space photos of at a library, etc., perhaps even to confer with Swan. Number two, SRI reports can contained the coordinates of the Ural Mountains and the Indian Ocean targets. These were passed to S11 with request to check them out. The results A available or blank available to NSA does not show anything within 25 mile radius of the target in the USSR. We have not tried to reconcile this finding with a blank oral report of CIA's finding. We have asked S11 to expand the search to a 50 mile radius. Um, and then on September 6, 1973, visit to CMDR George Long NIS. By way of background, on August 14th, 1973, I briefed, um, a guy generally on this caper and asked him to personally determine whether the blank, blank, blank bore any resemblance to the subject's description of the so-called underground installation. I provided Long with a copy of both the Price and Swan narrative descriptions and two maps drawn by Swan. Long visited the facility and following are his general comments, written details to be furnished me in a day or two. There is an astonishingly similar... There is astonishingly... Astonishingly. Astonishingly similarity between Price's narrative coupled with Swan's maps and the real thing. General physical layout of blank is almost identical with the Swan map number two, including the depression of some sort and something round and the flagpole and the road of some buildings. Um, there is an underground facility at blank consisting of no floors or two floors, probably. <laughs> Some of the words are a little, <laughs> that's fine. Well, how Some of the words are a little cut off. The first floor is unclassified while the one below is, uh, 
is classified record storage area. The dimension of this latter same given by price. There are a large number of gray filing cabinets in the room. There are not now and so far as long could determine have never been people assigned to the facility with names of Hamilton, Nash, or Long as claimed by price. No one Commander Long contacted at the facility admitted to recognizing any of the so-called words seen by Price. A guide escorting Commander Long on a tour of the two buildings volunteered that this is our haystack facility. The results of some independent actions I have taken over part uh, taken over the past several weeks to confirm slash deny the validity of the Price Swan information. A bunch of blanks. The <laughs> There's a whole paragraph missing. I believe it. There was an NRL experiment run at blank circa 1969 to see whether CIA could be tracked via moonbound signals. The equipment employed at blank was still called haystack installation. It probably is still used by the Navy, but presumably NSA doesn't know what for. In another blanked out paragraph. Mm -hmm. Um, B, there is indeed an island in the Indian Ocean coordinates. It shows a map in a commercially available atlas in S13. Its name is Kerguelen Island and it belongs to France. Another paragraph blanked out. The outline of the island, as shown in the atlas, does not bear much resemblance to the price drawing reproduced in one of the SRI reports. We seem to have both hits and misses here. Number three, blank called again, stating that he and others in the CIA were so concerned that he, blank, had briefed the director of security on the full details and recommended that there be a high-level meeting between CIA and NSA on the matter. I advise him that Mr. Tate would be the NSA point of contact for such a meeting. And that's the end of that document. Woohoo! Good job, Jen! Wow, I'm such a good reader. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, like, so. That education's finally paying off. <laughs> I learned how to read. It's amazing. <laughs> oh. But yes, so basically, what I. What our Jen has so belovedly read for me was the CIA's documents regarding their experiments and their studies on astral projection research and whether or not it could be used as a tool. And so what they found from, just to like reprise what you said, Jen, so basically what they had found was that they could, like people who were doing the astral projection could accurately find places and accurately picture what they were without having prior knowledge of these places and without having a logical reason to know what they look like. But one of the reasons that the project fell through and why we're able to read those documents now is that there wasn't a, like a properly substantial way to be able to use it or to study it any further other than there that they were able to confirm that people are able to do that. And it is something that happens and it is something that is true. Like when... People go to places that they've never been, and then one day they go to look, and they're like, oh, it's weird. It feels like I've been here before. Hmm. Without having ever been at these places. That is very strange. 
I don't know if I'm fully convinced. Right? So basically, what I am going to be doing is telling you the story of the project that the CIA was working on and kind of go over some of the people who were involved in the astral projection type thing. Okay. So. Take it away, Em. Take it away. So, the Stargate Project was the 1991 codename for a secret U.S. Army unit established in 1978 at Fort Meade, Maryland, by the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, and SRI International, a California contractor, to investigate the potential for psychic phenomena in military and domestic intelligence applications. The project and its precursors and sister projects originally went by various code names, the Gondola Wish, Grill Flame, Center Lane, Sunstreak, and Scanate, until 1991 when they were consolidated and rechristianed as the Stargate Project. So, the Stargate Project work primarily involved remote viewing, so the purported uh, ability to physically see events, sights, or information from a great distance. The project was overseen until 1987 by Lieutenant Frederick Holmes Skip Atwater, an aide and psychic headhunter to Major General Albert Stubblebein, and later president of the Monroe Institution. The unit was a small scale, compromising about 15 to 20 individuals, and was run out of an old, leaky, wooden barracks. Ooh. Yes, so it's a great start so far. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, the Stargate Project was terminated and declassified in 1995, which is what you read was the documents from that, after a CIA report concluded that it was never useful in any intelligence operation. Information provided by the program was vague and included irrelevant and ero- erroneous, erroneous, erroneous data, and there was uh, reason to suspect that its project managers had changed the reports so that it would fit the background cues. So the program was featured in a 2004 book and a 2009 film, both titled The Men Who Stare at Goats. Even though neither of them mentioned the project by name. Interesting. Right? So I, why, I knew you'd find that part interesting. I'm not sure about that one. I have never watched the movie myself, so I wasn't able to use it as like some as a part of my story just because I haven't seen it. But I don't know. I'd be interested to watch it and see how it relates to this podcast episode maybe after it airs, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Because that would be interesting. But yes, so uh, it is related to, or sorry, it is featured in The Men Who Stare at Goats. So, information in the United States on psychic research in some foreign countries was poorly detailed, based mostly on rumor or innuendos from secondhand or tertiary reporting, attributed to both reliable and unreliable disinformation resources from the Soviet Union. So, the CIA and the DIA decided they should investigate and know as much about it as possible. So various programs were approved yearly and refunded accordingly. Reviews were made semi-annually in the Senate and the House select committee levels. So work results were reviewed and the remote viewing was attempted, with the results being kept secret from the viewer, so the person who would be the the astral projector. Right. Right. So it was thought that if the viewer was shown that they were incorrect, it would damage the viewer's confidence and skill, So this was standard operating procedure throughout the years of military and domestic remote viewing programs. 
So even if what the person is saying isn't true, if you're validating it, they might actually be right because they'll be getting more confident in what they're doing, right? Right. So they might eventually work up to... To actually being able to do it, thinking that they were doing it the whole time. Yeah. Right. Makes Basically. sense. Basically. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So feedback to the remote viewer of any kind was rare for the most part, and it was kept classified and secret. So remote viewing attempts to sense unknown information about places or events. Normally it is performed to detect current events, but during military and domestic intelligence applications, viewers claim to sense things in the future, experiencing pre-recognition. So Hmm. I think we kind of talked a little bit about that before. It may be one of our lost cursed episodes where like (laughs) I mentioned before that for whatever reason, I seem to have dreams of things before they happen or like my mom does. Right. So that's its own thing separate from astral projection called pre precognition. Yeah, pre precognition. So basically either the sense uh, or the sensory feeling. So like viewing, seeing, tasting, smelling something that has not happened yet through okay. your subconscious state. So we might get into that a little bit more one day, but for the sake of today, putting it on the back burner. Would you say that's similar to deja vu or do you think it's a different thing? Deja vu is a type of precognition because the whole idea behind deja vu is that you go somewhere and you feel like you've been there before, right? Mm -hmm. So in some of those cases is that you have been there before, but maybe in the future, like you've just done enough or things have changed since then and you don't recognize that place anymore. And that's where a lot of feelings of deja vu come from. But... In certain cases of precognition, you have never been to this place before. It's not possible, whether it's in a new city or a new country, but you still feel like you've been there before. Right. Right. So that's how that ties in. But it is related to deja vu. Okay. Gotcha. So so the Stargate Project created a set of protocols designed to make the research of clairvoyance and out-of-body experiences more scientific and to minimize as much as possible session noise and inaccuracy. So the term remote viewing emerged as a shorthand to describe this more structured approach to clairvoyance. So Project Stargate would only receive a mission after all other intelligence attempts, methods, or approaches had already been exhausted. So it was reported that at the peak manpower, there were over 22 active military and civilian remote viewers providing data. People leaving the project were not replaced. When the project closed in 1995, this number had dwindled down to three people. So they had originally been over 22 mix of uh, civilians and military personnel who were astral projecting and studying it or being mm-hmm. studied. And by the end of the project, it, there were only three people left. So this is a little unrelated, but how, how do they astral project? I guess I'm curious about how they even like get that process started do you know oh okay okay so um i do know a little bit about this i did like some spot research before this in case it did come up i should have i probably should have explained a little bit more in the beginning but basically astral projection is a type they call it a type of meditation but i know a lot of people who are able to experience it when they're dreaming for the most part Mm -hmm. so you remember how i mentioned earlier that my brother talked a little bit about how he can control his dreams after acknowledging in some way when he's dreaming that he is and that he can change it after. Right. So astral projecting for the most part is very similar to that. Uh, they're like, there's a couple key things that are different. Uh, 
like, you and I can look at it later and I can get into all the geeky de- details and stuff like that. But, like, basically what it is is you are, you're having an out-of-body experience. So if you astral project when you're sleeping, in your dream state, you realize that you're sleeping and so you are making the choice in your dream to not be tied to your body anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like have you, if you've ever had a dream... Where in your dream, it feels like you're doing something in real life. Like you're in a place that you've been before. Maybe you can kind of like feel the grass on your feet. Maybe like you like you know the sun's out, but you can't feel the sun. But you, you know you're not really there. Mm-hmm. That would be a type or like in part the sense of astral projecting. It means that... Okay. Yeah, it means that you're physically not there, but your spirit is. And that's why in your mind you can see where you are because you are still attached to that part of you, right? That's why they say astral projecting, it, it lies heavily on the idea of spirit, right? Right. So there's a few, like, there's tons of um, examples of this in pop culture where mm-hmm. there's, like, a movie that, like, someone's in the hospital and they have, like, a concussion and they're not awake, but they have like an out-of-body experience out-of-body be... experiences and astral projection are supposed to be very similar like a lot of okay. people who swear by the spiritual experience of astral projecting will say that it's different but for the basic principle it's more or less the same thing that's why like i said you can do it in a bunch of different ways and there are right. people who will meditate with the intention of causing that to happen oh that's kind of scary how do you get back into your body that's another thing so (laughs) that's why there's a very big spiritual element because a lot of people believe that when you're astral projecting you're actually not you're not on the same plane of existence as your physical body is anymore right Right. because it's very spiritual orientated so the idea is that if you're astral projecting and you're having an out-of-body experience that you are on something called the astral plane which is mm-hmm. supposed to be similar to your physical day-to-day life, but there'll be a lot of other things where, like, um, it's like, uh, you know, you know, demons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I dabble in demons, yes. Just a little, a little here and there. But no, so basically on the astral plane, it'll be a lot of people who can also astral project will also exist on that same plane, or a lot of people who are saying purgatory... Or between spiritual le- realms can also be there, but mm-hmm. a lot. But there's also a lot of like belief in the in that uh, bad spirits or demons can also exist on that plane because it's spiritual, right? It's not like a physical existence. So like something right. that you can feel but you can't see would be existing on the astral plane, but not in your physical life, right? I see. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea. Like you like. Uh, Anyways, but yes, so that is more or less the idea. But why a lot of people who believe in astral projecting as a spiritual journey will say, will recommend not to do it unless you are friends with somebody or are working with somebody who has before is because of what you were saying, which is what I was trying to get to with the not being able to get back to your body. So Mm -hmm. if your spirit comes into contact with, say, a lost soul or some kind of creature entity that exists on the spiritual astral plane, your spirit might not be able to find its way back to your body, which is how you end up with situations like people in comas that can't be explained or stuff like that. Or it can actually damage your spirit. So like 
they're like, a, I'll have to look into it, but I know that there's a couple of people who, like I said, if that's their belief, will talk about stories of people who either encountered a lost soul or a negative en like entity and it damages you, right? Because you're very vulnerable when you're in that state and you can, you can be hurt mentally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally in that state still, right? Hmm. So that's interesting to think about. Yes. So like I said, we can get into the geeky details later, but that is more or less what it is. And that is a problem, actually, is <laughs> people being astral projecting and maybe not realizing and then not being able to get back oh. or not knowing the dangers. Right. OK. Right. Yes. So basically, by the end of this project, they only had three people left. And so let's see. One of them. OK, hang on. I need to rephrase my sentence. So. People leaving the project were not replaced, and when the project closed in 1995, the number of people dwindled down to three from 22. One was using tarot cards, according to Joseph McMonagall. The army never truly had an open attitude towards psychic functioning, hence the use of the term giggle factor and the saying, I wouldn't want to be found dead next to a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> it's harsh. Yeah, within the military. So... Next, what I'll do is I'll go over the start of the project, and then I'll go over when they close the project, okay? Okay. So, in the 1970s, the United States intelligence sources believed that the Soviet Union was spending 60 million rubles annually on psychotronic research. In response to these claims that the Soviet program had, pro uh, had produced results, the CIA initiated funding for the new program called Scanate, which was one of the uh, names that we went over previously of what the project started as. Right. So it's basically a, a mush of the word scan by coordinate, Scanate. So in the same year, remote viewing research began in 1972 at the Stanford Research Institute in Menlo Park, California. Proponents Russell, uh, Russell Targ and Harold Poloth, or Polthoff, Polthoff? Uh, of the research said that the mini minimum accuracy rate of 65% required by the clients was often exceeded in later experiments. So physicist Russell Targ and Harold Polthoff began testing psychics for SRI in 1972 including one who would later become an international celebrity, Israeli Yuri Geller. So their apparently successful results garnered interest within the U.S. Department of Defense. Ray Hyman, Hyman? Yeah. Professor of Psychology in the University of Oregon, was asked by Air Force psychologist Lieutenant Co uh, Co Colonel Austin W. Kibler uh, from 1930 to 2008, then director of the behavioral research for ARPA to go to SRI and investigate. So he went to specifically evaluate Geller. Hyman's report to the government was that Geller was a complete fraud, and as a consequence, Targ and Puthoff lost their government contract to do further work with him. The result uh, was a publicity tour for Geller, Targ, and Puthoff to seek private funding for further research on Geller. So... One of the project's claimed success was the location of the lost Soviet spy plane in 1976 by Rosemary Smith, a young administrative assistant recruited by the project director, Dale Graff. 
1977, the Army Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence, uh, ACSI, sim, uh, Systems exp- <laughs> Exploitation, I can't read anymore, Detachment, also known as SED, no, still can't. I've read so much since the start of our podcast, but I still can't read. <sighs> yes, so... Basically, then the project started as the Gondola Wish Program to evaluate potential adverse adversary applications of remote viewing. So Army Intelligence then formalized this in mid-1978 as an operational program, Grill Flame, which was then what it was called, like the project name, based in buildings uh, 2560 and 2561 at Fort Meade... uh, Minnesota? I don't know. What What's the abbreviation MD for uh, the states? Um, MD? It's not ND? It's MD. Maybe it was Mary Lind. I feel like I read Mary Lind earlier. Either way, it's in the states. <laughs> it's, it's a state. It's a state in the states. Um, Google says it is Maryland. Cool. That's what I thought, too. Perfect. (laughs) Okay, so that basically wraps up the start of their research in the 1970s. So, to kind of go back a bit, this is when they were starting the project and when they were starting to find people who were claiming psychic ability and being able to actually test them. So, this is a mix of military and, uh, like, civilian personnel also. That's why they included the name of the lady who uh, found the plane that was missing. So, in 1995, the Defense Appropriations Bill directed that the program be transferred from the DIA to the CIA oversight. So, the CIA commissioned a report by the American Institutes of Research that found that the remote viewing had not been proved to work by a psychic mechanism. So, just keep in mind, this is 20 years after the start of the project, roughly, right? Right. So... Uh, by a psychic mechanism and said that it had not been used operationally. The CIA subsequently cancelled and declassified the program. In 1995, the project was transferred to the CIA and retrospective evaluation of the results was done. The appointed panel consisted primarily of Jessica Utz and Ray Hyman. Hyman had produced an unflattering report on Yuri Geller and the SRI for the government two decades earlier, but the psychologist David Marks found Oot's appointment to the review panel puzzling, given that she had published papers for the Edwin May, considering that this joint result uh, research likely to make her less than impartial. So a report by Oot's claimed that the results were evidence of psychic functioning. However, Hyman in his report argued that Oot's conclusion of the ESP had proven to exist, uh, especially precognition, and was premature and that the findings had been independently replicated. So then, this is what Hyman says. So what he said was, Psychologists, psychologists such as myself, who study subjective validation, find nothing striking or surprising in the reported matching of reports against targets in the Stargate data. The overwhelming amount of data generated by the viewers is vague, general and way off target the few apparent hits are just what we would expect if nothing other than reasonable guessing and subjective validation are operating whereas Oots, the other person he was reporting with concluded 
No one has examined all of the data across laboratories, taken a collective whole, or have been able to suggest methodical or statistical problems to explain the ever-increasing and consistent results to date. So that was at the conclusion of the project. So to, to kind of like summarize what the heck all that was about. So when they were closing the project and when their funding, funding was getting cut. So uh, Hyman and Oots were two people who were working on the project who were kind of doing like concluding statements on what their, their research found on what their opinion was leaving the project. Right. So basically Hyman, who had been working on it since the beginning, they were saying was kind of weird because he was so into it, especially from the beginning and super into like these accurate results and everything, but kind of weirdly got flippy floppy when it came to the conclusion of the project and was saying things like, oh, there's no way to like 100% confirm, you know, it could have been determined through guessing on how a lot of these people were able to do what they were able to do and to see or guess what was going on. Like, basically, he right. pinned everything that they had confirmed as being uh, a, like, something that could have been a result of astral projecting. He said it was a matter of guessing. Whereas Oots was saying that uh, they felt that there there just wasn't enough ways to be able to study it across different laboratories to see why they were getting the results that they were, but that it would be foolish to dismiss it as being a farce, the whole project, because it's very bizarre still to be able to get a lot of that data that a lot of that data, especially with these certain people who are working on the project, like back to back to back being right and correct about things that they had no business being right and correct about, right? Right, that is very weird, you know. Right. So basically, that's kind of what happened with the conclusion of the project. Um, so what I did with my notes is I kind of, like, included some of the people, like, what their names were involved with the project. So I included some people. This isn't the name of everybody, just because some people were involved in the project but didn't really have anything to report. Either they never felt that they did astral project or anything, or there just wasn't anything relevant to the project that was able to be a part of it. Right. But what I'll do now is I will go over the people who had reports with working with the project, though, and who they were. Okay. So to start, we have Hal Puthoff, which is one of the people I mentioned earlier who was studying this also. So in the 1970s, CIA and DIA granted funds to Harold E. Puthoff, uh, the, this man, Hal, to investigate um, paranormal abilities, at collaborating with Russell Targ in the study of purported psychic abilities of Yuri Geller, uh, Inigo Swan, Pat Price, Joseph McMoneagle, and others as a part of the Stargate project of which Puthoff became a director of. As with Inigo Swan, or Ingo Swan, and Pat Price, Puthoff attributed much of his personal remote viewing skills to the involvement of Scientology, where he had been attained at that time as the highest level. So that's something they never mentioned earlier, which is why I kind of waited until now in the person's mm. descriptions. One of the people leading the project was a high level, because that's what they do is they have different levels, yeah. Scientologist. So, that is so suspicious. I know, right? Okay. Otherwise, but I'll, I'll just keep going. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about when it comes to that kind of stuff. So, uh, basically, he worked at the highest level there, and all three um, of them, so Ingo Swan, P 
Pat Price and Hal Puthoff, all three of them were in, in, in and involved with Scientology. But all three of them eventually left Scientology in the late 1970s. So in, coming into the project, they were in it. Uh, in the 19, late 1970s, before the end of the project, they all left. Oh, even the highest uh, level guy? Even Hal, yes. He, he who was eventually the director, it was a high-level Scientologist, and he left also, yes. Hmm. Right? I know, very interesting. So, Puthoff worked as the principal investigator of the project, and his team of psychics is said to have, un, to have identified... Uh, oh, identified? Identified... Spies located Soviet weapons and technologies such as a nuclear submarine in 1979 and helped to find the lost SCUD missiles in the first Gulf War and plutonium in North Korea in 1994. So basically, the states did find all that stuff and they're attributing it to the psychic abilities of people who were involved in this project under Hal Puthoff. That's interesting findings. I guess that was the whole point of the project then, was to find the Soviet and North Korean stuff. Basically, and then to see if they could replicate it. Like, could they get that as a working war technology that they could use, you know? Huh. Right? So then... America, which would turn everything into a war (laughs) vessel. Uh, Yeah, pretty much. So, So that's it for how his little, like... Uh, personal personal blurb about his involvement with Stargate. So then I have Russell Targ. So in the 1970s, Russell Targ began working with Harold Puthoff on the Stargate project while working with him as a researcher at the Stanford Research Institute. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's just to say that he worked with them. He wasn't involved with the astral projecting. Right. So then we have somebody called Edwin May. So Edwin May joined the Stargate project in 1975 as a consult and was working full-time in 1976. The original project was part of the Cognitive Sciences Laboratory managed by May, so by this person. With more funding, in 1991, May took the project to the uh, Palo Alto offices at SAIC. This would last until 1995 when the CIA closed the project. So May worked as the principal investigator, judge, and the Stargate keeper, for the project, David Marks noted that this was a serious weakness for the experiments as May had a conflict of interest and could have done whatever he wanted with the data that he was collecting. Hmm. So, yes. So, Marks had written that May refused to release the names of the oversight committee and refused permission for him to give an independent judging of the Stargate transcripts. So, Marks found this suspicious commenting that this refusal suggests that there is something must be wrong with the data or the methods of data in the selection, which is a fair statement. Yeah. Like, when you have somebody who's literally gatekeeping and isn't being totally forward with what they're doing with the data, either. What was his conflict of interest? They never said, so I'm going to assume it's probably a personal conflict of interest that they oh. included in there, but my my thing would be then, if they're suggesting that, that it might be that he wasn't... Uh, along with the ideals of the Stargate project was probably a big one. Yeah, that's probably true. Right? So then we're going to talk about Ingo Swan. So he was originally tested in phase one where uh, OOBE Beacon RV experiments at the American Association 
of Psychical Research was under research director Carlis Osis, a former OTVII Scientologist. So this is one of the people who were originally in Scientology. So um, who allegedly had coined the term remote viewing as a derivation... I can't read that word, of protocols originally developed by René Warcollier, a French chemical engineer in the early 20th century, documented in the book Mind to Mind, Classics in Consciousness series by books, uh, so on and so forth. But uh, basically, Swan's achievement was to break free from the conventional mold of casual experiments and candidate burnout the or and develop a viable sense set of protocols that put clairvoyance within a framework and named it coordinate remote viewing. So in 1995, letter Edwin C. May wrote that he had not used Swan for two years because there was rumors of him briefing high-level personnel at SAIC and the CIA on remote remote viewing and aliens and ETs. Ooh. Yes. (laughs) So, So basically, he was in Scientology, and basically his thing with the project is that he was... He coined the term remote viewing, which is what they were using to describe clairvoyance within the project. And he uh, was kind of attributed with a lot of the, like, practical factors behind, like, what they were doing. Okay. But he got taken off the project when he was found to be discussing their research findings, which included clairvoyance and aliens, but in the same vein. So whether it be that there was something that they found during this project related to aliens, they never really go into, and it's possibly one of the redacted things from the document that you read. Right. So. Interesting. Right? So then we have Pat Price. So Pat Price was a a former Burbank, California police officer and a Scientologist. He's the third Scientologist who participated in a number of Cold War-era remote viewing experiments, including the U.S. government's sponsored projects Scan8, which is the Stargate project, as well as being in the Stargate project. So Price joined the program after a chance encounter with fellow Scientologists at the time, Harold Puthoff and Ingo Swan, near SRI. So they all found each other through all being Scientologists and having having that be their relating factor. So... Basically, right, so working with maps and photographs provided to him by the CIA, Price claimed to have been able to retrieve information from facilities behind Soviet lines. He's probably best known for his sketches of cranes and gantries, which appeared to conform to CIA intelligence photographs. At the time, the CIA took his claims very seriously. So he is one of the people who was actually involved within the Stargate project as somebody who was astral projecting. And his thing that he was doing was that he was able to see with his mind's eye, as per what he describes, like different things that the CIA had, and it was corroborated with photos that the CIA had taken of the Soviets. Mm. Like he would draw out a picture and then the CIA could cross-examine his picture with photos that they had taken and they'd be like, oh... This matches up with this photo that we had taken. That's super weird. Right? And very so, unexplained. Ooh, spooky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, one yeah, so basically... mysteries of the world. Literally, right? So, yeah, so he's one of the people, though, that were very seriously viewed within the project. So then 
we have Major General Albert Stubblebine. So what a dumb name. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I thought that, but I was gonna be nicer and say, "Wow, looks so sophisticated." He has five whole names. <laughs> no, I'm not a classy bitch. <laughs> uh, yes, but yes. So for the sake of being non-fancy bitches, we're just gonna call him Albert Stubblebine. So. <laughs> A key sponsor of the research uh, initially at Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, Stubblebine was convinced of the reality of a wide variety of psychic phenomena. So he required that all of his battalion commanders learn how to bend spoons uh, with their <laughs> minds, uh, such as Yuri Geller. I know, right? And uh, he himself attempted several psychic feats, even attempting to walk through walls. So... Yes. <laughs> we got us we got ourselves a regular Harry Potter. I know. I won't get into too much detail about that, but that is technically a psychic test. Oh my god, is the crime that he bent a spoon in a store and didn't pay for it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. No, you you're going to hate me when I come to the crime part. Just oh saying. I usually do. Yeah. So Sorry, let's see. I'm totally distracted now by his spoons. Um, okay, so in the early 1980s, he was responsible for the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command, during which time the remote viewing project in the U.S. Army began. So wait, some coming... wait, wait. They put the spoon guy in charge of something? Yes. He, he oh is Major General Albert Stubbine. He is like a high-up military official. I can't even fucking believe that. <laughs> That's why I was like, hey, we're just going to call him Stubblebine because half the shit I'm going to read is completely unbelievable. So, yes, uh, Major General Albert Stubblebine uh, has, is, tries to walk through walls. And <laughs> in the early 1980s, he was responsible for the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command, uh, during which... Time, the remote viewing project in the U.S. Army began. So some commentators have confused a Project Jedi, allegedly run by special forces primarily out of Fort Bragg, with Stargate. After some controversy involving these experiments, including alleged security violations from unclear civilian psychics working in sensitive compartmented information facilities, Major General Snubblebine was placed on retirement. So... His successor as the INSCOM commander was Major General Harry Soyster, who had a reputation as much as a more uh, as a much more conservative and conventional intelligence officer. So M.G. Soyster was not amendable to continuing paranormal experiments, and the army's participation in Project Stargate ended during his tenure. Which makes a lot more sense now, right? Yeah, that does make sense. Right. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't leave him out. I just couldn't do it. Nah, spoons? He's he's the OG. I can say I have never tried to bend a spoon with my mind. I've just never thought to do it. Maybe I should try. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I just don't even understand. There's so many things. I have so many questions. Next I have David Morehouse. So in his book, Psychic Warrior, Inside the CIA Stargate Program, 
the true story of a soldier's espionage and awakening, awakening in the year 2000, Morehouse claims to have worked on hundreds of remote viewing assignments from searching for a Soviet jet that had crashed into the jungle, carrying an atomic bomb, to tracking suspected double agents. Okay, so he is one of the astral projectors. Uh, Joseph McMoneagle. So McMoneagle claims that he had remarkable memory of, a vi- of very early childhood events. He grew up surrounded by alcoholism, abuse, and poverty. And as a child, he had visions at night when he was scared and began to hone his psychic abilities in his teens for his own protection when he hitchhiked. So to be able to see what would happen to him the next day before having experienced it, that was what he was doing. So he's one of the people who had precognition. Okay. So he enlisted in the military to get away from all that. And, Mc, and McMoneagle became an experimental remote viewer while serving in the U.S. Army Intelligence. So he you know, was involved in the program. I just don't feel like I can trust anyone who writes a book called The Psychic Warrior. See, I kind of felt the <laughs> same way. <laughs> if you're calling yourself a psychic warrior, I feel like that takes away from being a psychic warrior, if that's what you yeah. are. You're just not credible anymore. I... Thank you, next. Right? Okay, so (laughs) next I have Ed Dames. So he will be the last person that I talk about involved with the project. So Ed Dames was one of the first five army students trained by Ingo Swan through stage three in coordinate remote viewing because Dames' role was intended to be a session monitor and analyst as an aide to Fred Atwater, another person involved in the program, rather than a remote viewer Dames received no further formal remote viewing training after his assignment to the remote viewing or to the remote viewing unit at the end of January 1986. He was used to run remote viewers as a monitor and provide training and practice sessions to viewer personnel. He soon established a reputation for pushing CRV to the extremes with target sessions on Atlas, Mars, UFOs and aliens. He is a frequent guest on the Coast to Coast AM radio shows. So basically, he was involved with the program. Yeah, initially with the military. And uh, basically, during his time there, he was known to try and push his own ideas onto people that he was training to astral project to kind of gear them towards finding out more information about Mars, UFOs, aliens, things that weren't necessarily a goal of the project. Right. Okay. A regular old conspiracy theorist. Yes. So, There's got to be at least one. Yeah, right? So that basically wraps up my story about the CIA. I will say I still have one more thing to talk about, though. Just it's my, it's my little treat for the end of the episode. But no. It's the kind of crime. Yes. So, but yeah, no, basically that's the whole thing of the Stargate Project. Everything I talked about is something that was confirmed by the CIA, everything that I talked about is people's own recountings of stuff that actually happened, of documents that they were truly able to replicate using astral projection, and it was shut down because they still, to this day, have not found a way to substantiate a lot of that stuff. As with anything that is involved with the spiritual side of things, it would still be difficult as we have not found a way to uh, be able to scientifically prove or control a lot of those different types of uh, measures. Of life. Hence, pseudoscience. Hence, pseudoscience, yes. Okay, so are you ready then for my little end of episode treat? 
Yeah. Kay. Sauce me that donut. Okay, so basically the bulk of my story today is a precursor and an explanation to astral projecting because of this little tidbit crime here. Oh my god. Okay, so let's just wash our brains really quickly of uh, Project Stargate. And we're going to talk about a man named Cadell Jensen Raja. Okay? Okay, I'm listening. So he... So basically, here's the thing. So I tried really hard to find more information about this particular person just because of the nature of the crime I'm about to talk about. But everything I found was talking in a very much first person type perspective. So that's kind of how I'm going to read my notes. Um, right. And I will say I tried really hard to find more information on this guy. There's nothing. It took place in, uh, I'm trying to see here. I believe in, it was either in India or in Asia, but either way, a lot of the reporting that was done on it was all very similar information and it doesn't look like there was very in-depth information given. So this is a very surface level crime story, okay? Right. So basically, Cadell, Jensen, or Jensen, Raja, the accused, was in police custody with connection to multiple murders at a place called Namthan Code. Made He made a strange revelation to uh, the investigative team on uh, Tuesday, I guess. They didn't never told me the year either that this happened in, <laughs> so I'm going to assume it's within the last few years. But uh, It happened on a Tuesday. It, all, all we know, we know is it happened on a Tuesday. <laughs> so he made a strange revelation, uh, and he admitted to killing his parents, his sister, and a relative... Ooh. While experimenting with astral projection. Mm, as one does. Right. So, so his confession, sorry, it's not funny. People are dead. But uh, <laughs> his confession started the police so much that they consulted various psychiatrists for assistance from them to interrogate, to further interrogate him. Though he admitted to the crime, his vague and contrary statements confused the investigative team. So... He was 30 years old and was grabbed by uh, the railway police from the first platform of Thampanor Railway Station on the Monday, that was before the Tuesday, evening. So, <laughs> so the day of the week that this happened. Why am I like this? I feel like I read the year two and I must have taken it out of my notes. Why am I like this? Not important. Yeah, we don't need to know what year it happened in, apparently. So... Uh, he had been booked in under Section uh, 302, Punishment for Murder, and Section 436, mischief, uh, mischief by Fire Explosive Substance with Intent to Destroy House, and Section 201, Causing Disappearance of Evidence or Offense or Giving False Information to Screen Offender of the Indian Penal Code. Okay, it was in India. I knew it was, but at the same time, I was like, I kept reading these different city names and I was like, okay, like I might be wrong because there was another story I was going to talk about that was originally in Asia, but this one's in oh, India, just, just to be clear. So we know the country. And we know it was on a Monday and a Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about it so far. Yes. So, uh, according to investigators, Cadell had revealed some parapsychological beliefs that he had in his mind for the past few years. Cadell had been obsessed with these kind of parapsychological beliefs 
including astral projection, and Cantel told the police that he had experimented with the separation of the spirits from the body, that in fact he was living in a virtual world without even going out from his residence for quite some time. However, the interrogation is on, uh, so I completely mashed up that sentence <laughs> when I was typing. As you can tell, I was getting tired towards the end. But um, but if it wasn't a virtual wor- world, that makes me think it is recent. Yeah, exactly, right? So um, basically, uh, the, inter- the interrogation team was just stating that regardless of his claims in, uh, of belief in parapsychology, they were still going to continue investigating him to find uh, other sources than uh, belief in astral projecting. Um, right. So the police team had also accompanied expert psychiatrists from the medical college hospital to interrogate Cadell, whose arrest was officially recorded late on the Tuesday. So he will be uh, produced before the magistrate on the Wednesday of the week. And <laughs> and Cadell was also subjected to a medical examination Uh, at the MCH after shifting him for the second round of interrogation at the commissioner's office. So ADGP South Zone B. Sandhai also interrogated him. Cadell is expected to be brought into the crime spot on the Wednesday for collection of evidence. Meanwhile, unconfirmed police reports said psychiatrists have diagnosed him with schizophrenia, a chronic mental disorder that affects how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. He had been undergoing this disorder for the past few years and was not giving any treatment. So on interrogation, Cadell had uh, said that he had allegedly murdered the family members using an axe brought through an o- bought through an online platform. Okay. So basically, the reason why I thought this case was interesting is that it was a long time that he tried to convince investigators that he had killed his family using astral projection. And that's why there wasn't any evidence. But then they found the axe? Yes. So, And that's the only reason why he retracted that statement and then was like, oh, yeah, I bought it online and then I killed them with the axe. I actually didn't astral project to kill them. Guy. I know. And that's the whole thing, too. Uh, so that was the if other thing. If he had just been honest on Monday, then life would be by so Wednesday, bad for him on Wednesday. He could have already been in prison instead of talking about <laughs> astral projection. <laughs> I know. Oh, Jesus. But yeah, no, but see, that's the thing is that I did want to talk about that story a little bit more in depth, but just the information wasn't there and everything. And with the whole astral projecting, they did say that the main reason why he would have had such strong beliefs when it comes to that was likely due to being a undiagnosed, unmedicated schizophrenic. But who's to say? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> maybe he did astro project and maybe it was his maybe he astro projected into an axe that then killed his family maybe while he was sleeping he had sleep paralysis and online shopped and bought the axe and didn't realize it because I think now that I'm thinking about it that's how all of my spontaneous purchases happen see I it thought it made all sense. sense in the world now exactly right <laughs> But I get it. that concludes my super long episode about the CIA and astral projecting. Wow, that was a long one. I know. I never planned for it to be long, but that's the whole thing. Like when I was talking about the CIA stuff, it was really hard 
to chop out information, like explaining a lot of like the different services names or the different names of the project or like what the personnel were, what they did, how they were related to it, especially since it was over the span of 20 years. So I tried to give as solid information as I possibly could, as dry as it may be, but... Well, my story for next week is also very long. (laughs) I guess saddle up, folks. Yeah, you guys are in for some long ones. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I'm completely brain dead now. But uh, I guess this means (laughs) that... I want pizza. I really want pizza. I'm going to put some pineapple pizza right in my mouth as soon as we (laughs) hang up the phone here. (laughs) (laughs) perfect i am so excited but yes so uh you can follow us on our social media at wheel of crime for facebook twitter instagram um you can listen to us on apple podcasts and spotify we are wheel of crime as you may not know which i hope you do we want to give a big shout out to our patreon Andrew Mears. Yes, thank you so much. Um, It's just amazing. You're a super awesome, a super awesome fellow, and I am blessed to have you in my life. Thank you so much. And if you want to join us over on Patreon, you can find us at... Wheel of Crime, again, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you want to email us uh, literally anything... Just your thoughts. I will read it. Uh, Wheel of Crime at gmail.com. Let us know if you astro project while you shop as well. Yeah, I would uh. love to hear some <laughs> astral projection stories. I am super curious. This is true. I didn't even think that there could be people in the military who did that. But I mean, I guess there's different types of people everywhere at every profession. So exactly. Maybe I'm just yeah. Ignorant. I'm probably just an ignorant white gal. Honestly, I wake up every day and I just think about how ignorant I am, and I will probably continue to be ignorant for a very long time. Um, but unless there's anything else that you have to add, Jen, I believe that brings us to the end of the episode. That's it, folks. This is Jen saying sayonara, bitches. Yeah, this and- is Emily signing off, and I guess we'll see you guys, hear you guys. Feel your astral presence next week. <laughs> oh, that's that's spooky. I don't that... want that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jenny doesn't want it, but maybe maybe if we all join together, this cursed season will be less cursed. You can astral project in Emily's house. Okay, you can bye. astral project into our inbox, a wheel of crime at gmail.com. <laughs> we will see you there. Oh, jeez. Yeah, Emily, signing off. Bye, guys. Bye.